This is Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in again this week. Hey, I have a very, very unique guest that will be joining me on today's program. Her name is Carmen Alexa, and I'm having her on the program today because her story is as much an economic lesson as it is a human interest story. I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with Carmen. Uh, Carmen actually uh, grew up in communist Romania. She was a competitive swimmer, and she escaped at the age of 18 by crossing the border, as you'll hear uh, her tell, from Yugoslavia to Italy and applied for political asylum. She then moved to the United States. She's been living here since 1983. She is a successful business person, and uh, she has made it really her life's calling to learn a lot about economics, and she's going to talk to us about her observation as to where loose money policies ultimately lead. So I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with her. She will be joining me in the next segment. And speaking of loose money, uh, there is once again pressure on Jerome Powell and the rest of the Federal Reserve Board to reduce interest rates. Well, in our fractionalized reserve banking system, when interest rates are reduced, money is created. And you know, it doesn't take the proverbial rocket scientist to figure out that as more money is created through these easy money policies, the less the newly created money is worth. In other words, the less that it actually will buy. Now, when studying history, which is what we like to do here at RLA Radio, we discover that money creation historically is tolerated by the populace as long as the money creation is not excessive. But... A study of history also reveals that money creation leads to debt excesses, and eventually debt levels get so high that the only option for servicing the debt is more money creation. And now you're on a very, very slippery slope. And ultimately, at some point that no one can actually pinpoint, faith in a currency begins to decline and then accelerate. Now, it's my view that we are approaching that point. The current national debt of the United States is $22.4 trillion. Hopefully, you were listening to RLA Radio last week when I interviewed Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff, who served on the Council of Economic Advisors under Presidents Reagan and Clinton. Professor Kotlikoff told us that the Social Security program has unfunded liabilities of more than $40 trillion. Now, when adding to the national debt and the unfunded liabilities of the Social Security program, the unfunded liabilities of Medicare and other government programs, the fiscal gap of the United States is well over $200 trillion. Now, debt and unfunded liabilities of that magnitude just cannot be covered or paid through higher taxes. As we've demonstrated on past programs, it is mathematically impossible. Political demagogues advocate solving these problems by taxing the mega-wealthy, billionaires in particular, 
There's only slightly more than 500 of those in the United States, and taking 100% of their wealth only runs the government for a period of months. You could cut spending to solve these problems, but it would require an across-the-board spending cut of nearly 50%. Slashing spending at that level would result in a deflationary depression. Now, there is not one politician aspiring to the office of chief chief executive, at least not one that I have heard, I could be wrong, who is advocating for cutting spending, getting the deficit and the debt under control. In fact, I'm observing exactly the opposite. I'm observing that most are proposing costly new programs for which there is no money. See, the only remaining option to fund this is money creation. And on past programs, we've discussed this new monetary philosophy dubbed modern monetary theory, which is essentially just creating money out of thin air. Proponents say that governments can never run out of money because they can just create more. However, lots of dollars have already been created since the financial crisis. And now there's talk, as I open this segment with, of reducing interest rates even further. Now, The Federal Reserve has been able to get away with massive money creation to this point for a couple reasons, in my view. One, the U.S. dollar is still the primary world reserve currency. The dollar is still used in lots of international transactions. In fact, if you want to buy oil from Saudi Arabia, you have to inventory U.S. dollars to do so. The other reason is that every other central bank in the world has also been engaging in money printing, money creation. And there's not one currency exists in the world today that is not a fiat currency. So there's not a currency, so to speak, to keep another currency honest. Now, this is beginning to change, and historically speaking, it always does. The reality is money creation simply cannot go on forever. Paper money creation in particular. The late economist Herbert Stein put it simply and profoundly when he said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Now, this past week, I saw another article that pointed to yet uh, another event and another statement made that indicates that confidence in the U.S. dollar around the world continues to erode. President Putin of Russia stated on the global stage, the Federal Reserve note, the U.S. dollar no longer deserves the status and privilege of world reserve currency that allows unlimited printing of the currency. He actually, the first time he mentioned it, he's mentioned it twice now, that this was a threat to Russia's national security. Now, Putin, and I'm quoting here, said that this model not only contradicts the logic of normal international communication, The main thing is it does not serve the interests of the future. And Mr. Putin went on to say that this system needs to be dissolved. Now, there have been a number of reports, including in this article that was penned by Rory Hall. Mr. Hall pointed out that Russia, there have been numerous reports, that has been and is apparently readying a gold-backed cryptocurrency to use in global trade. Now, I have seen nothing firm on this, although I have read many of those similar reports. Now, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is a currency that is backed by a uh, technology called blockchain technology. 
And at this point, cryptocurrencies are really not backed by anything other than this, this technology. If there was a gold-backed cryptocurrency, certainly that would be something that would gain the interest of a lot of people looking to store their wealth around the world. Mr. Hall concludes with an interesting statement. He said, Russia, along with China, are working on a global trade settlement mechanism outside the dollar, and regardless, well, you would have to be some kind of serious stupid to ignore these words. Certainly, I would agree. Is the dollar's failure imminent? Not at all. Is the dollar still, as I like to say, the best house in a bad neighborhood as far as currencies go? It absolutely is. However, you would be wise to probably consider diversifying. I talk about how to diversify in the book, New Retirement Rules. It was on the Amazon bestseller list a few years ago. I'd be glad to send you a complimentary copy of the New Retirement Rules book by simply visiting the website, newretirementrulesbook.com, and letting us know where to send it. Newretirementrulesbook.com is the website, and I'll be back after these words with Carmen Alexa. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the distinct pleasure of chatting today with Carmen Alexa. Uh, Carmen is a first-time guest on the program. Um, I actually uh, come to know, uh, came to know about Carmen and her website, solitarygal.com, uh, through Jay Taylor, who is actually a former guest here on the program. And uh, Carmen grew up in Romania during the Cold War, and uh, she writes a lot about um, what's going on as far as this uh, interest in socialism, and she speaks about it firsthand, so I thought it would be a terrific uh, interview to have uh, Carmen on the program today. So first of all, Carmen, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dennis. It's so great to be with you. So, Carmen, just to give our listeners maybe some background about you, talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up, um, how you got in the United States, and let's just start with maybe a little bit of background, if we could. Sure, sure, absolutely, Dennis. Um, I grew up back during the Cold War in uh, socialist Romania, and I lived there up until I uh, turned 18, and then when I had the opportunity, I was a swimmer, a competitive swimmer, and when I had the opportunity to um, escape, to travel over into what it used to be uh, Yugoslavia, I uh, crossed the border from Yugoslavia into Italy and uh, lived over there for about seven months where I uh, applied for political asylum and I immigrated to the U.S. back in 1983. So uh, that's pretty much, it was a, a very difficult and challenging, I should say, escape, but um, I'm not the only one. A lot of other, other Romanian people have escaped, and actually they took even more dangerous routes to uh, achieve freedom in the United States and in other countries of the world. So talk to our listeners about what life was like when you grew up. Sure. Um, I remember my family, first of all, uh, the late 70s and, and, and early 80s were uh, when we experienced scarcity of, uh, of a lot of uh, uh, goods uh, on the market. 
Um, and it's important for your audience and everybody else to know that um, the stages, the transition between free markets and uh, what they call socialist markets, which in reality they're not real socialist markets, but that's another topic. Uh, but let's put it this way, centrally planned economies. Um, they, they go through various stages and they take time. And even though Romania became socialist a long time ago, right after the, the Bolshevik Revolution that occurred in, in Soviet Union back in uh, 1918, it took a long time for the private markets to be destroyed. And um, therefore, the late the 70s and early 80s, and then I escaped and I, I did hear that it got even worse, uh, we experienced scarcity in the markets. So they had the bureaucrats from the government come over to our home, and they, they did the census, and along with that, they, they did the rationing. So my family, because we were four, we were allowed to have only uh, one uh, kilogram of sugar, one kilogram of flour, certain you know amounts of whatever various uh, um, products out there um, uh, were available. Um, so basically, rationing had occurred during the early 1980s, and that is if you were able to wake up early in the morning and go and stay in line for the store to open and be able to get to those because a lot of times you could still be entitled to, say, uh, rationing and, and a kilogram of sugar per month or, or so many eggs, but if you got there uh, late after the store opened and there, was no more, there were no more eggs available or milk or whatever, then you were not, you know, you were out of luck basically. So that's one of the things that happened in, in Romania, um, and along with that, of course, it happened, um, the, the, um, the, the people have lost a lot of their freedoms. Uh, businesses, I mean, you couldn't really actually own your own business unless it was an underground black market business, which was pretty much predominant in, Rom in Romania. Some of my friends, which were young people, they were engaging into... Uh, um, into bringing in from the outside a lot of commodities, a lot of good things that um, you cannot find on the on the market um, in the public sector, um, say like blue jeans or coffee, good coffee. Uh, a lot of traffic was uh, with uh, uh, cigarettes and uh, and uh, alcohol, especially whiskey. Um, so. Uh, a lot of these things not being available, obviously, it created a black market, and those were pretty much the only entrepreneurs. Other than that, everything else was centrally planned. Uh, people, with a few exceptions, were not able to own their own homes or their apartments or their land. It was pretty much in the hands of the government. And I could go on and on and on, but what's also very important before I, I um I finish on this uh, on this uh, subject is that free speech was not something that people were entitled to, and this is what really concerns me today. Dan is here because a lot of the censorship, uh, a lot of the propaganda, uh, pretty much stifles free speech, and it makes people be afraid to silly freak their mind. And that had happened in Eastern European countries and. For example, um, you are not allowed to speak derogatory about the government. You are not allowed to speak derogatory about the president. If you did, you got caught, 
then there would be repercussions. So, Carmen, fascinating story. And if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Carmen Alexa. Her website is solitarygal.com. She does uh, a terrific job uh, writing on that website. I would encur- encourage you to check it out. Uh, Carmen, there's a couple different things I'd like to go back and, 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 and just follow up on. Uh, you, you made a comment that centrally planned economies uh, and, and you know this, this whole transition from free markets to um, really non-free markets, to use that term, takes time. And I know you've studied this. And, and what, what does this transition look like? And then maybe if it makes sense uh, and you care to comment, um, are you seeing the current economy in the United States and the current uh, political environment headed in that direction? Dennis, um, I'm glad you asked this because, um, again, I want to reiterate that I had left socialism. I had left my country not because I wanted to, because I wanted to live in another place, but because I wanted to be free. And I'm sure everybody, you know, most of the people want to be free. I mean, uh, it's their right to be free. And so I came here thinking naively that this would be a place where freedom will always last. And while I experience a lot of freedom, and, and I can say right now that we're yet in that position, we are transitioning in a, and, and we're going through phases. I could see the red flags um, uh, that are happening. And along with that, it's not only my observation, but also the fact that I, um, after 2008, when the market crashed, you see, I was in the mortgage business many decades, so uh, mortgage and banking business. So I really thought at that time, uh, Dennis, that I knew it all, but I didn't. I knew nothing. So when the market crashed, uh, I decided that I wanted to know what actually had happened. I, I was very curious, which led me to reading a book by Ron Paul, which was called Revolution and Manifesto. And from there, I found out about the Mises Institute. And when I started to look there, I, uh, I read a lot, and that really prompted me to dig more and research more and understand more free markets which are associated with the Austrian School of Economics. Um, so I, I read as much as I, co- I could, uh, Henry Hazlitt and, and Murray Rothbard and, and Ludwig von Mises and everything that I could read, um, and I was an avid reader. And along with that, obviously, I, I started to, to look at things differently than before and probably differently than most of the people today. So what I had seen, I'd seen, I understood the boom-bust cycle, the business cycle, uh, which uh, most of the people don't understand. I think politicians refer to the boom-bust cycle like this is something that is caused by, uh, actually they blame the the free market capitalism and, and they, blame, they blame capitalism for, for the uh, unfolding of a, of a boom and bust cycle, which is absolutely incorrect. The Austrians, as you know, because you're in that, um, probably I'm sure you are in the same arena, uh, they discovered that basically the central bank, which in our case is the Federal Reserve, expands the money supply, and through the expansion of the money and credit, it creates an artificial boom. And along with that, an artificial boom basically uh, at one point will crash 
The bubble will burst, usually it's when the central bank recognizes that speculation and, and uh, inflation have gone that far, so they have to really put a, a dent, they have to, to stop, prevent the, the, the dollar from crashing and also you know, from in, uh, the inflation from, from taking a, a higher course. So then, then they raise the rates, obviously, and along with that, what happens, the market crashes. Uh, at that time, the government, well, the natural course would be a deflationary co uh, course, which we all know. But um, uh, the government does not allow that to happen, and um, they interfere with the market. They cause more disruptions. They prolong the recovery. And along with that, what happens is we have high levels of unemployment and inflationary, obviously, they create, again, inflation because, again, they expand the money supply. People lose their jobs. They lose their standard of living, and then guess what happens? We all know that people start looking at the government to be their savior, and that's where the problem is. When people lose their jobs, they lose their purchasing power. Uh, they lose their ability to provide for their families and um, they look at the government to solve their problems, and then they start giving up their freedoms in exchange for government-provided economic security. And I guess people don't care about freedom from what I see. They used to care much more, but when it comes to their standard of living, obviously they, 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 they're willing to give up their freedom in order to, to put foot on the table. And this is what happens, and this is, you know, what I'm seeing right now. I've seen after 2008, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we have probably more than 50% somehow uh, of the population of the United States being dependent on the government, whether it's through government jobs or uh, employment or uh, welfare benefits, financial benefits, uh, I guess welfare benefits in general. Yeah, I think that's right, Carmen. I think that uh, the, the last statistic I saw was that more than 50% of U.S. households get some type of check or benefit from the government. So I, I think that's right. Um, so we, we have about a minute and a half left in this segment, and we can pick it up in the next segment. So as, as we were talking about this transition from, from free markets to socialism and a loss of, and a loss of freedoms, um, is is the the path we're on parallel to the the, the path that maybe you saw or at least learned of uh, in Romania? Um, I think it's a little bit different because what happened in Eastern Europe uh, was pretty much a result, a consequence of international banking system financing and funding. As far as I have read, the Bolshevik Revolution. So things have, have changed over there as, a, as an interference from outside. Here it seems like interference is basically, uh, I mean, all these things, the, the, the monetary issues, they're an inside, you know, they come from within. However, the phases, I think, of, of losing liberty and, and free markets, they, they are similar to, to both um, Romania, Eastern Bloc, and, and, of course, the United States, the way I see it. 
Well, we are chatting today with Carmen Alexa. Her website is solitarygal.com, solitarygal.com. That's S-O-L-I-T-A-R-Y-G-A-L.com. I would encourage you to check it out. And I will be back with Carmen after these words. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am having a fascinating conversation today with my guest, Carmen Alexa. Carmen's website, if you're just joining us, is solitarygal.com. That's S-O-L-I-T-A-R-Y-G-A-L.com. Carmen grew up in Romania during the Cold War, and as she shared in the first segment, she uh, actually uh, went across the border from Yugoslavia to Italy and sought political asylum and... Uh, uh, I think you said seven months later, Carmen uh, came to the United States. And we're chatting with her because Carmen has really, uh, after the crash of 2008, uh, become a serious student of central banking and monetary policy. And, Carmen, we were talking a bit before we uh, started recording again that, you know, the average person, when you when you ask them, you know, who is the Federal Reserve? What does the Federal Reserve do? You know, many relatively bright people assume that that's an arm of the government, but it's really a private group of bankers that control monetary policy. So let's just talk about why it's important for someone to have an understanding of this. And it's, as we talked, it's really a shame that this isn't taught uh, other than you almost have to go out and find an organization like Mises or FE.org and, and, and learn it on your own. Sure. Sure. Dennis. Um, I think, in my opinion, it's very important for people to understand that a loose monetary policy is going to eventually affect them big time. Um, And the central bank, it is a private corporation, from what I read. However, it works in collaboration with uh, the government. In other words, the central bank, without the powers of the government, cannot really do much. So they have to collaborate and they have to have the blessing and, and uh, the okay of the government to, to effect their policies, uh, to put their policies. Um, so the average person, I think, in my opinion, needs to understand that a loose monetary policy uh, affects them several ways. It does have a lot of uh, uh, several uh, consequences. Uh, one, for example, is um, it debases the currency. So in our country, uh, the dollar is being debased. So um, that's, uh, that's not very good for people because they lose their purchasing power. And uh, again, politicians, when they try to be elected or reelected, they talk about uh, inflation like... Um, it's some sort of a stranger alien coming from another planet, and the uh, inflation is really beyond their control. Whereas, in fact, it is the politicians who, who vote and, and help the central bank to inflate the, the, the money supply and credit supply, and thus causing the rise in general rise in prices that we see at the store, that we see in real estate, in rents, 
uh, in the price of electricity and energy and all that. Um, so it, because the wages of people don't go up as fast as, uh, say, the, the rise in, uh, in prices, uh, people's purchasing power is being affected. It goes down. Um, so what does inflation look like, and, and, and basically who does it hurt the most? Basically the same people that the entire nation claims, and politicians, especially in the government, they want to help, which is the poor people, because they're dependent on some sort of a government program that doesn't, and, and welfare program that doesn't go up according to the rising prices, general prices. And so those are the first people to be, to, uh, to be uh, hurt. Secondly, we're talking about elderly, people who have now a pension or some sort of social security uh, 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 benefit. And these people, again, are being hurt because when they go to the market, when they have to pay their bills, they cannot afford as much anymore. So their standard of living goes down. The savings is being discharged because in an inflationary policy, what happens? Interest rates stay low. So basically, savings is not really encouraged. That's why, I mean, I'm, I'm in a business right now, and I've been in the mortgage business before. I mean, I've seen Americans living, and it's become really standard right now, Americans living from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, savings is something like, uh, you know, outrageous. How, how, how dare we talk about savings, in a sense? So low interest rates associated with expansion of the money policy, uh, monetary policy, um, is, uh, um, is something that uh, is discouraged. And finally, it basically uh, uh, widens the gap between the, the rich and the poor, and the, actually the, the rest of the people, and it, uh, it destroys the middle class. So this is what inflation does. Um, another consequence of, uh, of a loose monetary policy are Worse. I mean, basically, money, you know, more money in the market, more, more money for the government to do whatever they want enables them to engage in wars that a lot of them are really, truly unnecessary. And I don't really want to go, I don't, we, we don't have the time to go into the topic of wars, because, but all we need to know, they're expensive and they're destructive. And they're not just destructive to humanity in general, but they're destructive to destructive to our economy and to our own very own people. Uh, finally, the boom and bust that we started to, to talk earlier, the boom and bust uh, cycles, which uh, appear to be like uh, uh, a very predominant. We've seen the 2001.com, uh, uh, and we've seen 2008. Right now it looks like we're in another artificial boom. All this, the Austrians basically said it clearly that um, along with that, people lose um, their employment. They, uh, they look out to the government to, to help them, to save them for their economic security. In the process, we have an increase in the size and the powers of the federal government. And when that happens, the larger the government, the smaller the individual becomes. So this is how we lose our free freedoms, individual liberties. And that is a scary thing because a lot of people, Dennis, they don't think in America, they, they, if I say anything like that, they think, oh, my gosh, you're crazy. This is not Soviet Union. But I ask people, what do you think would prevent that from happening? 
well, we Americans, because we know we were, we're doing this and, and we're pro that and pro that. And I said, well, so were the Russians before, you know, a communist uh, uh, took over. So, Carmen, uh, you know, it's interesting because this really gives us a unique perspective. Uh, there is a certain connection uh, that, that you have drawn uh, between loose money policies and as loose money policies are continued and you know with each new bust it takes more stimulus to create the boom you get you get less bang for your buck so to speak but you've drawn this this parallel that's interesting that uh the the loose money policies really lead to a loss of freedom so in your view what do you see as the end game here how how does this ultimately play out are we on a a course that we cannot reverse at this point, in your opinion? Well, um, Dennis, um, I've, I've sometimes wondered myself the same question, because sometimes I'm a little pessimistic. I look at things, and especially that's why I don't like to read a lot of the news, mainstream news. Uh, I don't like to look a lot on Facebook, because so much socialism is being promoted and endorsed and touted and you know that's very discouraging to me because I have not risked my, my, my life and I'm sure most of the people who came here for the same reason for freedom and economic opportunities they didn't come here to to experience socialism they came here to experience a free life and and do what you know you know live a good life uh, but Sometimes I get positive and a little bit more optimistic when I get into the technology sector and also when I am around, uh, I guess, crowds of people that are like-minded individuals. So when I'm, you know, I say, for example, talking with people, uh, to people like you who are pro-free markets, entrepreneurs, they encourage freedom and self-sufficiency and independence and personal autonomy. Um, I feel like, yeah, we're growing. I think with Ron Paul, there's been a revolution. I hope that it'll continue to stay and we continue to uh, to take this to new levels. Um, so I'm I'm a little conflicted. Sometimes I'm negative, sometimes I'm positive. But I want to think that with the Bitcoin and with also the uh, not necessarily just Bitcoin itself, but the crypto markets. And uh, I, I'd like to think that uh, the deregulation and, and uh, in, in, the, uh, in the technology sect, uh, sector would probably lead to something that will be more um, freedom-oriented. And it allows people to separate themselves a little bit from the government and its policies. So, Carmen, last question for you. If someone is listening to this today and they say, you know, this, this whole idea of democratic socialism makes a lot of sense to me, what would you say to them? Democratic socialism. Okay. Well, it's interesting you said that because Trotsky, who was a key element, peon, basically, of the Bolshevik Revolution, he was a Democrat socialist, okay? Uh, and I bet you that most people do not know that. Trotsky and Lenin, obviously, but Trotsky in particular, he was a Democrat socialist. And, um, 
here, when when people are going after, uh, basically, are endorsing and 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 promoting uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, like Bernie Sanders claims uh, that democratic socialism is not socialism; is different. It's something that we can create, and he basically points out to some of the Scandinavian countries. But the problem is, Scandinavian countries—they're not true socialists. They started that route, but a lot of their uh, leaders recognize that free markets are imperative to freedom and are imperative from from transitioning to a uh, to a socialist government. So, therefore, some of their governments basically started to go back into expanding the free market. It's true that they have a, a high, a big welfare state. Uh, a lot of people on uh, on their welfare uh, programs. But eventually, if they don't do something about it, um, it's going to take a little bit of time, and it's going to show up uh, in the market. So uh, what I'm trying to say, whether you call it democratic socialism or socialism or communism or fascism or any type of ism, unless it's true freedom, you really cannot get anywhere. You're only going to get into a system where... Truly, the 1%, the elite, are going to control, control the rest of us, and that's truly a, a, a wealth redistribution. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Carmen Alexa. Uh, Carmen's website is solitarygal.com. Um, I have perused it and uh, would encourage you to do the same. Again, the website solitarygal.com. And uh, Carmen, really enjoyed the conversation today. Would love to have you back at some future point. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate that, and I look forward to it. I will be back after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I certainly hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carmen Alexa. In this segment, I want to share with you an excerpt from the New Retirement Rules book. If you haven't yet received your free copy of this book that has been on the Amazon bestseller list, all you need to do to request your copy is visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com. Let us know where to mail the book, and we would be glad to send you a copy. You know, in the first segment, I talked about the fact that easy money policies lead to a boom-and-bust economy, and many people are surprised to learn that this cycle has actually been going on for a very long time and repeating itself in U.S. history at various times. Back in the 1790s, the first version of a central bank, kind of like today's Federal Reserve, was established. Alexander Hamilton, whose picture you'll find on the $10 bill and was the nation's first Treasury Secretary, uh, really claimed this as his idea. His colleague, Thomas Jefferson, was very much opposed to the idea. Now, this first central bank that was set up had as assets gold, silver, and government debt, 
And it was Hamilton's idea to begin to print paper currency and make loans to its customers using this newly printed currency. Now, there was a limit placed on the amount of currency that could be printed by the bank. That limit was three times the gold and silver that the bank had on deposit. Contrast that to today, where there is no limit. Now, this paper currency the bank loaned the customers was redeemable at any time for gold or silver. However, this created a potential problem for the bank because there was three times as much paper currency as there was gold and silver to back it. Well, this led to certain inevitable economic consequences because whenever money is created, it finds a home, and also often it finds a home in speculative-type investments like stocks and real estate. Well, after the War of 1812, there was a lot of war debt. And the politicians had three choices to deal with the war debt. They could raise taxes, cut spending, or print currency. And what they did, I'm sure you've already guessed. It's a very predictable policy response. They set up the second central bank of the United States. It was established in 1817. And this bank, like the first central bank of the United States, could print paper currency. The result, predictably was a bubble in real estate and a bubble in stocks. The Panic of 1837 set in, and about that same time, the United States went back on the gold standard, where an ounce of gold was priced at $20.67. So basically, a one-ounce gold piece was worth about 20 bucks, and that price didn't change until 99 years. 99 years later, in 1933, then-President Franklin Roosevelt took the nation off the gold standard in order to be able to print paper currency. The goal being was, the goal was actually to eliminate or ease the symptoms, uh, economic symptoms of the Great Depression. Now, there was an exception to this, and that was during the Civil War. During the Civil War, President Lincoln took the country off the gold standard to fund the war. Now, there's a quick lesson here that I want to cover. It's impossible to spend massively when you have a gold exchange standard. Well, during the Civil War, President Lincoln took a look at the amount of gold in the vault, and he quickly concluded he could never finance the war. He was going to need a lot more money than he had the gold to back, so he just eliminated the gold standard. Paper currency was printed. It was green in color, and that's where the term greenback comes from. And that's how the Civil War was funded. However, this money creation predictably created a bubble in real estate and stocks, which led to the Long Depression of 1873. Fast forward 40 years. The third central bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, was established. Immediately, the Fed removed 100% backing of the U.S. dollar with gold. They reduced it to 40%. That increased the money supply by 250%, and it created the prosperity illusion of the Roaring Twenties. Now, I use the term prosperity illusion here intentionally. As we've established, easy money leads to easy credit, which leads to asset bubbles fueled by accumulating debt. And asset bubbles burst when the system reaches its capacity to add debt. In the case of the debt excesses of the Roaring Twenties, the debt purging came during the 1930s, which was the Great Depression.
Now, after World War II, the United States went back on a quasi-gold exchange standard system. The U.S. dollar was made the world's reserve currency, and the dollar was exchangeable for gold at a fixed rate of $35 an ounce. However, during the 60s, there was a Vietnam War, there was Medicare and Medicaid, and they required a lot of funding. The politicians, rather than raising taxes or cutting spending, decided to print currency, and foreign investors decided they would rather have their gold than they would their dollars. They were still eligible at this point to exchange their dollars for gold at a rate of $35 an ounce. In 1971, then-President Nixon saw the writing on the wall. There was not enough gold in the vault to back the paper U.S. dollars circulating, so President Nixon stated that in order to preserve the integrity of the U.S. dollar, he was temporarily suspending the redemption of U.S. dollars for gold. And of course, as you all know, those redemptions have never resumed. So since that time, there is no limit on the amount of money that can be created. It allows debt levels to rise to even higher levels. There will always be consequences to debt and money printing. That's what the New Retirement Rules book is all about. If you're just joining us, let me remind you, you can get your free copy of the best-selling book by visiting NewRetirementRulesBook.com and requesting your copy. That's NewRetirementRulesBook.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Be sure to tune in next week. I'll be joined by Dr. Gary Schilling. 